Welcome back to Snowcast. I'm your host, Alex McNamee. We took last week off, but uh, we're back this week and basically have our next three episodes all queued up, uh, scheduled, and ready to go. Today we're talking about media law with Jonathan Peters, a media law professor at the University of Georgia. Here we go. Peters, a media law professor at the University of Georgia and press freedom correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alex. We follow Jonathan on the Columbia Journalism Review looking for his latest reports, and and one came down the pipe today. Let's just quickly talk about that before we kind of get into the bulk of it, but it's about this libel suit that's come against um, the New York Times from Joe Arpaio, that old uh, sheriff who was in the news not too long ago. Let's just kind of briefly talk a little bit about what's at stake there, especially from a standpoint of editorial writing in this case. Sure, yeah. This, this is a case um, in which Arpaio is the Times for uh, libel, false light, and one other business-related uh, civil claim. And the money damages at stake are $147.5 million. So it's an eye-popping number. And uh, Arpaio claims that um, in an August 29th opinion piece uh, titled, Well, at least Sheriff Joe isn't going to Congress, um, that he was liable by certain factual misstatements in the story. And uh, we are at the phase of the litigation where you know, the only thing that we've seen so far is the complaint that has been filed by Arpaio. We haven't seen the response yet from the Times. Uh, the Times has said publicly that it is you know, preparing to um, uh, fight this forcefully. And the Arpaio case was inter- interesting to me on its own merits, uh, but was also interesting to me because it is the latest in a long line of libel suits that had been uh, either filed or resolved um, in the past year or so. And some of the other libel cases involve um, uh, Elon Musk, uh, mm-hmm. Michael Co- uh, Cohen, who is you know, President Trump's former fixer, uh, Stormy Daniels in a libel suit against President Trump, uh, Sarah mm-hmm. Palin, um, Roy Moore of, of Alabama infamy. And so, you know, the list goes on, but um, I was interested because, you know, as the headline of the piece um, uh, indicates, you know, libel law appears to be having a moment. And I was really interested in um, what this means or portends for libel law overall. And one of the points I conclude with is that, you know, libel law overall is in good shape. And it's protective of speech, uh, especially speech on matters of public concern. And I think that you know, most of the ongoing suits that I discuss in that piece are likely to fail on the merits. But um, nonetheless, I'm, I'm concerned because you know, even baseless threats and flimsy suits can chill speech on uh, matters of public concern. Yeah, everybody's so careful and watchful of how they're being portrayed in the media nowadays. That is true. <laughs> uh, and you've got you know, increasing 
resources dedicated to that very purpose, both on the part of organizations and individuals who are wealthy enough to, to pay for them. We'll have a link to go read that story uh, attached with this podcast, but let's talk about this midterm election that's coming up here just a few weeks away, and there are a bunch of student journalists already weighing in on the topics and issues at hand and getting ready to kind of go out and cover the election um, from a you know student press freedoms perspective. I just kind of wanted to lay out for everybody um, by talking to you, you know, what they are, you know, lawfully allowed to be doing and to be going out and covering town halls or covering um, debates or covering election events and um, covering the polls and things like that. Sure. I think the starting point is to underscore that the work that student journalists do at the, at the high school, middle school, and college levels is important. Um, you know, today, the gathering, the production, and the dissemination of news is increasingly dispersed. And um, you know, as we all know, traditional news organizations have been adapting to changing circumstances and challenging economics. And um, an outgrowth of that has been the creation of opportunities for student journalists to play you know, greater and greater roles in meeting their community's needs for both news and information. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a couple of uh, concrete examples here. Um, about a year and a half to two years ago, student journalists in Kansas uh, published an investigative story showing that their newly hired principal lacked the credentials that she claimed to have. Mm -hmm. um, government offices, they dredged databases, they interviewed people, they conducted um, international conference calls, uh, all while some district officials stood by the principal. Uh, but eventually the principal resigned and professional journalists worldwide praised the students' reporting. You know, that, that was hardcore public affairs reporting. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago in New Jersey, um, student journalists brought to light misconduct complaints against the superintendent. Uh, and around the same time at Northwestern University, um, undergraduate journalism students produced a series of news reports that um, led to the exoneration of, uh, I think it was six or seven um, Illinois prisoners, and uh, three of them were under death sentences. Hmm. So, you know, I think the, I think the, the starting point is to, is to acknowledge that student journalists do important work, they do vital work for their communities. And then after we acknowledge that, then the question becomes, well, how do we protect that? Uh, what, what does the First Amendment have to say about that? And what does the uh, U.S. Supreme Court have to say about the First Amendment in that area? Mm -hmm. So um, public schools for decades have had a really fitful relationship with free expression. Um, so we've had you know, districts expel students who refused to salute the American flag at school. We've had some who suspended them for wearing armbands at school to protest the Vietnam War. Um, you know, another school suspended a student who made sexual references in a school uh, speech. Um, if many of them had censored articles and advertisements that appeared in publications. Um, and some have even suspended students who used their uh, personal off-campus websites or social media to criticize teachers administrators, mm -hmm. and um, either fortunately or unfortunately, depending on the case and your perspective, you know, the courts have been active in this area. Um, today, it is settled law that a public school student generally does not have 
the same free expression rights as an adult in a non-school setting. And the, the reasons given by the Supreme Court are, are threefold. So, number one, uh, public schools have an obligation to create an environment that is conducive to learning and relatively free of disruptions. Um, number two, they have an obligation to maintain a curriculum that is um, appropriate for the ages and maturity levels of their students. And then number three, public schools have an obligation to protect the rights and interests of all of the students at the school. And so sometimes those obligations um, cause teachers and administrators to feel that they need to restrict student expression. And so every year we've got new disputes in this area. And, you know, I, as one writer put it ages ago in an article that, that I read, and I, I like the way that she put this, she said that, you know, tensions between high school papers and principals surely date back to the first time that a student journalist suggested in a story that you know, Central High USA was not the very best school anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so you know, too many students that exist at the mercy of the school boards that fund them. Um, uh, but uh, this does not mean that students and student journalists surrender their speech rights when they are in school. So the two cases that we have to understand in order to um, wrap our heads around, our minds around, the complexity of student speech rights, uh, number one is you know landmark famous case called Tinker v. Des Moines, and number two, right. uh, an equally landmark and probably infamous rather than famous case, uh, Hazelwood v. Kalmeyer. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Tinker case, if you strip away the surplus, um, it's a, it's a good speech case. It, it says that students um, you know, don't give up their speech rights to the schoolhouse gate and that students uh, may engage in speech on um, matters of public concern as long as the speech does not uh, substantially disrupt the school's normal activities. So that, that's good. You know, that's a high speech protective bar. Um, then, unfortunately, we get Hazelwood. And Hazelwood in 1988 said, and this is a Supreme Court case as well, said that um, the content of a public school newspaper that is produced as part of a class, um, in, in the absence of a policy or practice establishing the paper uh, as a forum for student expression, can be regulated by administrators if the regulation is um, viewpoint neutral and the administrators show a reasonable educational justification for it. Um, and unfortunately, schools since then have used Hazelwood to, to legitimize all kinds of speech and press restrictions. Um, you know, I, I think that Tinker is quite congruent with the production of high-quality investigative journalism. You know, that, that could be about an election like the upcoming midterms, or it could be about um, you know, misconduct or malfeasance going on in the school. It is much harder to square Hazelwood with the interest in producing high-quality investigative journalism uh, because Hazelwood uh, also gives school administrators some discretion to distance the school from speech that would be politically controversial. And so you know, that is by definition what a large amount of public affairs reporting is because you're reporting on politics, politicians, elections, and electioneering so Hazelwood doesn't help us a whole lot in the area of you know, reporting on elections, whereas Tinker um, um, does. And 
have kind of the the other side of it as well as far as an intimidation factor not only with those laws but uh but with maybe the perception of any and all media and the experience of one person over the other i mean i saw this story recently you have a georgia senator who you know maybe as an act of intimidation is taking a phone out of some student journalist's hands at a town hall meeting um you know, when he's asked, just asking a question and, and taking a video of it, how would you advise students to deal with anything like that where they're maybe being bullied a little bit? Yeah, that's so immensely frustrating. And this is something that um, has been a growing problem in the last couple of years. And uh, I, I've written that one of the most dangerous places for journalists to be in the United States is at um, a protest or a demonstration uh, you know, trying to cover it. You know, not participate in it, but just there on the sidelines trying to cover it because we've seen there's so many journalists who have been arrested, they've been attacked. Um, and so in, in just 2018 alone, uh, we have seen um, 39 journalists who have been physically attacked by someone. Um, and, and in many cases, I'm not talking about the police, I'm talking about some other some other person, just some civilian who doesn't like the fact that the press is around. Um, and then we've had six journalists who have been arrested just simply for doing journalism. Um, the example that you gave is a great one from you know, a week ago involving you know, my home state's U.S. senator, uh, who, as you pointed out, um, when he was asked a question uh, related to the upcoming election, rather than answering the question or declining to answer the question, snatches the cell phone out of the student's hand and then for you know, a period of some seconds, some between five and ten seconds, uh, refuses to give the phone back uh, while engaging the student in conversation. And so, um, you know, that too can have a significant chilling effect. Uh, and it can be a First Amendment violation. Um, you know, there are uh, federal claims that you can file against government officials for the deprivation of civil and constitutional rights. So to the extent that the person who is engaging in that behavior is a government official, you should consider bringing that sort of claim. Um, and otherwise, I think if you're going out into the field in a place where you are concerned about your um, physical safety, it would behoove you to um, either research this on your own or you know, contact somebody who is knowledgeable in this area and talk about best practices in terms of protecting your equipment, uh, protecting the work product that you gather while you're in the field, uh, protecting your actual person and any sources that you might be interacting with in the field, and then worst case scenario, um, 
what do you do if you are assaulted, if you are detained, or if you are arrested? And you know, the particulars there could involve having um, an attorney you know, on retainer or at the ready to take your call if you need him or her. Um, this is somewhat regrettably uh, becoming, uh, you know, has, has been becoming a more common practice for a news organization sending their journalists out in the field. And I, I think that student journalists perhaps would be at an even greater risk than professional journalists for that type of intimidation. You talked about libel having a moment as you wrote. It also seems that, you know, anonymous sources are having a little bit of a moment as well as far as, you know, the op-ed that uh, was published by the New York Times. Um, But also, you know, we see a lot of anonymous sources related to um, sexual assault stories and things uh, like that. What are the kind of standards as far as using anonymous sources and um, you know, have you been kind of racking your mind around the idea of, you know, the New York Times situation and then what would happen should some other reporter at the New York Times break a story with, you know, who wrote the op-ed because that's just become as newsworthy? Right. Yeah, the, the, the New York Times example is kind of a nightmare in the hypothetical <laughs> because if there is a, a U.S. Supreme Court case from about 20 years ago that... Um, allows individuals who have received promises of anonymity from news organizations and then those promises are broken to sue the news organization on um, what amounts to a breach of promise theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here, the New York Times is in the really peculiar position of being you know, on the opinion side the organization that has promised anonymity, and then on the news side, the organization that would very much like to unmask the author of that you know, now famous op-ed. Um, I, I, I'm unaware of any cases that are directly on point that would answer the question of, uh, the legal question of liability if the New York Times outed the, the identity of the author. I don't know if a court would be willing to respect the, the wall between opinion and news, or if that wall would collapse in the face of a you know, breach of promise theory uh, lawsuit. And then more broadly, since you ask about uh, protecting sources and how we think about that today, um, I'll kind of bifurcate that. And the first thing I'll say will be not about the law, but about ethics. And I think that even if you've got the legal, uh, even, if, even if you can confidently offer a promise of confidentiality with respect to the law, what I mean by that is that you can make a promise and expect that the law will be able to back up your ability to keep that promise. Even if you've got that ability, you should think about ethically whether you want to make that promise. I think that you know, best practices use anonymous sources as uh, infrequently as possible, uh, and you know, not least because um, news research has shown that news consumers have higher levels of trust in using information if they know the provenance of the information, so if they can see the sources you know, with their own eyes and make their own conclusions about them, they can you know, judge any biases they may have or you know, any expertise on, on issues on which they're speaking that they may have. And so I think as journalists in practice, it's best to, to name your sources. Um, and identify them clearly. And then now, if we deviate from that, we say that we're in an exceptional circumstance that warrants the use of an anonymous source, um, then we need to think about what your uh, your ability 
abilities to protect uh, the identity of that source. And there I'm going to bifurcate it yet again. And you can think about this practically, and you can think about it legally. So the legal part of it is thinking about the jurisdiction that you're in and whether that jurisdiction allows you to um, refuse to testify um, under a privilege when subpoenaed or otherwise uh, hailed into court to give up the identity of the source. Um, and if you have the, if you have some kind of legal privilege that would allow you to um, refuse, then great. And legally, you, you, you're doing good stead. Uh, but think about the problem practically, too. So are you in your journalistic practices being careful with the information that that anonymous source has given you? So, for example, um, a lot of what we do today is digital. You know, we trade story drafts in the cloud. We communicate with editors and sources using uh, you know, cell phones and emails uh, and, and you know, live chat functions and you know, various workflow apps. And the problem with all of that is that they all leave little digital footprints behind us. So that if an interested party, whether it's the government or a non-governmental actor, decides that it wants to find out who you've been talking to, it used to be that they would go through a legal process and try to compel you to give it up. But now that party might simply try to hack into one of your electronic accounts to read your notes and see who you've been talking to. So you know, while some years ago it may have been enough to think chiefly about the law, increasingly it is... Uh, incumbent upon all of us who make promises of anonymity to think about the practical steps we're taking to keep those sources safe and secure from prying eyes. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. We'll let you go on your way. All right. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it very much. That's the end of my conversation with Jonathan Peters, and that's the end of our show. Come back next week for another episode.